balancing patience and determination. These are two of the ten paramis, patience or acceptance, tolerance, gentleness, and determination, resolution. The ten paramis are generosity, sila, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, metta, and equanimity. The ten paramis, or ten perfections, are qualities that the Buddha perfected over lifetimes. They're um, action that is very pure. It's action that's not motivated out of greed, hatred, or delusion. And as you can hear, these are qualities that are developed not just in one lifetime, but in lifetimes, and over many lifetimes, not just a few. And this is a very vast map for us. Uh, It's not that we work on generosity and then graduate from kindergarten and then get a master's and a PhD in generosity and then are finished with it. You know, which is so much how our minds can work. You know, it's it's a path to walk on. Each of these ten paramis is a way of life. It's something that we practice and practice and deepen. We don't graduate from it and then are finished with it. And so we can practice and deepen patience over lifetimes. We can practice and deepen determination or resolution over lifetimes. And sometimes I think these ten paramis are a really helpful map to understand what we're doing here as a human being on the planet, that we're here to awaken. Uh, But we awaken by learning spiritually. And we learn spiritually from whatever karma, whatever uh, happens in our lifetime. It's not like whatever happens in our lifetime is an obstacle to overcome. It's uh, the very um, juice of what liberates us, if we can learn how to work with it well. So if we can understand uh, that practice means way of life, you know, it can really help us in terms of getting impatient with any kind of spiritual progress that we might try to measure within ourselves and within others. A moment of patience in our life is never wasted. A moment of mindfulness in our life is never wasted. All the practice is aimed at developing understanding and compassion. And this takes great determination and great patience. I'd like to read uh, part of a poem. Well, actually, it's the whole poem uh, by William Hayen. And it's from a book, his book called Crazy Horse in Stillness. And it's called Steadying. And this book is an attempt 
to try to come to grips with um, tens of thousands of years of flowers blooming on the prairies in our country and the buffalo appearing, numbers of buffalo that are unimaginable to us, and then trying to come to grips with what happened when different cultures uh, came together, that meeting of two very different cultures, kind of embodied in um, Custer and Crazy Horse. It's like a whole book of trying to kind of come to grips with the karma of these two cultures meeting, steadying where we are and at what speed. I know we're spinning 14 miles a minute around the axis of the Earth, 1,080 miles a minute in orbit around the sun, 700 miles a second straight out toward the constellation Virgo. And now Custer is charging maybe a half a mile a minute into an Indian village. But for many eyewitnesses, we know Crazy Horse dismounted to fire his gun. He steadied himself and did not waste ammo. Where we are and at what speed? Can you ever feel us here? 700 miles a second moving out toward the constellation Virgo. You know, sometimes we can feel really deeply when we're sitting and so still, just that sense of velocity. And then what is the meaning in that? What is the meaning of all the suffering on this planet? And trying to find a perspective of what we're doing here. If we try to figure that out intellectually, you know, as you see, when we try to do that, we tend to get nowhere. Uh, but the Buddha taught that there's a way to freedom, there's a way to awaken here where we don't leave the planet, we get very deeply connected, but we also develop this understanding of what's happening here so that we have this deep equanimity. So we can deeply care, but also be detached. So the Buddha described moving from the conceptual world to an intuitive understanding of the world based on our own moment-to-moment experience. One of the things that's so wonderful about this long retreat is that at this point in the practice, most of us have seen clearly how hard it is not to get lost in thinking. You know, how actually mindfulness can seem more remote (laughs) the more one practices, so that it can seem like a miracle to really hear a sound just as it is. Or it can seem like it's an amazing feat to notice a breath come and go by itself. Or even more amazing to see a thought appear and disappear just as it is, without getting identified with it, or to take a step mindfully. And there can be this perspective that it almost seems impossible, 
And the great feat in meditation is to shift to think it's almost possible. Over and over we come up against that. It's too hard to beginner's mind. It's possible if we just try to do it in the next moment and the next moment. Uh, And so this is where that understanding of paramis, that we're here, our instruction is to develop spiritually from our own experience, and that it's a way of life, and that the wisdom and compassion sink in drop by drop. It sinks in intuitively. It doesn't sink in intellectually. It just doesn't work that way. That's not the process. So that development of intuitive wisdom and compassion, it takes patience because it's not something that I can figure out. It's deeper than that. There's um, an expression called Cold Mountain. Cold Mountain is a place of practice where the practice is effortless and when we're not taking things personally. And in my last retreat last fall, I kept thinking that it's important to try to get to Cold Mountain and then forget. You know, to try to have that balance where we really do have the determination and resolution to do this It's important, or we wouldn't even show up at a retreat. It's important because it takes that kind of effort to do the practice, but then it also requires not trying, letting go of control. And this is this balance. It's like a balance of a healthy yang and a healthy yin. We need both. And it's delicate. When there's a sense of tasting peace in the practice, these are moments when greed, hatred, and delusion aren't present. And this is when we'll understand patience more than anything. When greed, hatred, and delusion aren't present, we really understand that the practice is timeless. We understand that sacred space is timeless. And we'll feel this open opening or spaciousness and we know that we have all, t- all the time in the world. And we can really be with one breath or one step. Uh, it's, it's amazing to shift out of that world of time and having to get somewhere and striving to just being here. They're like two different worlds. So we can learn patience by dropping into that more timeless world. That's one way that we understand patience. The other way is when we're backed into the corner. And we're all pretty much backed into the corner at this point in the retreat. It's like you know when you are lost in aversion, lost in wanting, lost in not wanting. We can see that I can't get itself out of itself. A separate self can't get itself out of a separate self. And that's when you'll feel frustrated, you know, and lost. It's not possible for aversion to get itself out of aversion, or attachment to get itself out of attachment. And it's like we're holding a hot potato, 
And we can just feel it burning and burning and burning, but we haven't let it go. It lets go by itself. I can't let go of itself. There's something bigger than that that happens. And so we might notice the times in practice when we feel slightly off, or maybe we feel much more than slightly off. We feel (laughs) really despairing or lost and confused, or maybe just restless or sleepy. Uh, But we can see that it takes an incredible patience, acceptance, allowing, but also that ability to keep going. And that ability to keep going, no matter what, is this quality or parmini called determination or resolution. It's, it keeps going with gentleness. It keeps going with allowing. And so many people have been describing that sense of just keeping going, and then this unexpected mindfulness comes. And in that moment, we s- it's like we see the mindfulness come. And we see that we didn't do anything to make it happen. It just clears. But we didn't go to sleep. We didn't give up. You know, there was something happening. A lot was happening. Patience was happening. Determination was happening. Those paramis were at work. I think of those times when unexpected mindfulness comes as a kind of grace. Krishnamurti called them the benediction. And you can hear in that word, benediction, or grace, that sense that an I, a separate I, hasn't made that happen. It happens by itself. But we have to show up for it to happen. You know, that showing up is the patience and the determination or resolution. Most of us are familiar with the song Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. (laughs) Um, And it was written by a man that uh, owned a slave ship. He was a slave runner and he brought Africans uh, from Africa to America uh, in horrible horrible work, horrible thing to do. Uh, And after many of these trips uh, and bringing many slaves to America, um, he he was in a terrible storm, you know, on one of the transports. uh, And he had this moment where he realized how horrible (laughs) his life had been, how horrible his actions had been. And he woke up and decided he wouldn't do it anymore. And people theorized that even the tune of that song was from uh, hearing uh, the uh, to-be slaves uh, singing in in the bottom of the ship in horrible conditions. And if you hear it, it's like amazing grace, you know, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How many times have you felt that? You know, that feeling of being so wretched. You know, hopefully you have. (laughs) At the least, if you don't feel wretched, maybe like a fool. You know, because we're really fools. We're suckers. You know, we grab for greed, hatred, and delusion 
over and over. That's being a fool. <laughs> so what is that benediction? What is that amazing grace? If we look closely at what the blessing really is, it's when we really don't need anything to be happening. You know, when there has been that incredible letting go and we don't need experience to be yielding anything because we're not identified with it, no matter what, that, what it is, that whatever's happening is really just enough. So we're able to be present with however life is happening. And we call that in this tradition, it's a balance of mindfulness equanimity, concentration. And it, when that's present, letting go happens by itself. Going deeper happens by itself. When this balance is happening, a sound of a bird, knots in the body, neurotic thought patterns, all will be seen as not mine. They come and go by themselves and there's more and more peace. There was a, a very peaceful sitting I was having during my last retreat last fall here, and it was so peaceful. And I had this thought, well, I'm just not going to ever react evermore. <laughs> and, and it was so funny. <laughs> I'm never going to react again. <laughs> and at that point, I just could see it. It's just a thought. Uh, but can you imagine if I believed it? You know, <laughs> we do. We believe those thoughts. And then when we believe a thought like that, we have less patience, less equanimity when the reacting happens. It's so interesting that even a thought that could be so maybe subtle, actually I could see at that moment if I had believed it, it would have thrown any sense of peace out. And we see that in our practice over and over, that way in which we were a fool. We believe that even the teeniest tiny thought. There are so many ways that we get lost in experiencing ourselves, experiencing ourselves as a separate self we get lost in obsessive thinking or planning or karmic knots, whether they're physical or mental. Or we can get lost in opinions and judgments. Or very seductive, we can get lost in figuring out the universe. So the way that we can work with these many different ways that we suffer is by this determination. It's, it's not to give up, but it's also not to get out the whip. Because this is the place in practice where we tend to get lost in thinking that we're not doing it right. You know, that somehow if we're lost, something's wrong. And we can get lost in such doubt and such health, self-hatred, which is just adding more aversion into being lost versus true patience, which is just allowing 
being lost. So it's out of the, the determination to keep going, but also that incredible gentleness and compassion that the presence of mindfulness will appear again. And you've been sitting long enough to see that happen again and again and again. We're lost and then it clears, and then we get lost and then it clears. Uh, so by going through that as a practice, we start to really be able to let go of control of getting lost and it clearing, getting lost and it clearing. And more energy frees up because we're not reacting to getting lost. And we're also not reacting to it clearing. You know when it clears and you think, well, I'm the best yogi here, or maybe <laughs> second best, <laughs> you know, or I'm doing great, you know, or that was a great sitting, or, you know, we can get just as identified with what we call good practice, and that can take as much energy reacting to that as feeling like we're no good, no one loves us, we might as well just go eat worms. You know, it's that feeling of, you know, getting totally identified with being lost and it being bad practice. That balance of patience and determination is what allows us to maneuver through this lost, free, lost, free process. When the presence of mindfulness does appear, which we can't make happen, we're free. And we need to remember through practice that there's no one who is free. It's only freedom. It's just being free. And also there's no one who's lost, just being lost. It's just that when we experience ourselves as being lost, it really feels like there's someone who's being lost. And when we're free, it will really feel like there's no one who's free, only freedom. It's so, that's what makes it such different worlds. This is a very old poem from a book called The Wine of Endless Life. And most of the poems in it are anonymous Chinese poems. And this one is called Admonishing Myself. Sit in the clean breeze. Sleep in the high white clouds. No one can spit in your face when you're there. Hum a tune and laugh. Let the rest of them yoke themselves to millstones. Hide in a hole with peace and joy. East, it's within me. And west, that too. Clouds may be thick or thin. Windows may be dark or bright. Take it easy. You can break the poor old dragon's jaw by pulling teeth for meaning. Stumble along as upright as you can and don't be avaricious. Who tries to hold what flashes in the worldly storm will drown. 
flow and you'll fill the forms. Stop and you'll leave a hole. Doing within me and hiding that too. Pretend to be stupid. Act like a fool. Pretend to be deaf, to be dumb. What can a person make that's lasting? Hum a few phrases. Dream white clouds coiling your green mountain pillow. See everywhere embroidered white with peonies. Flourishing within me. And fading, that too. Can we hold that? Can we hold east within me, but west, that too? Can we hold Custer and Crazy Horse doing, hiding, and most important, flourishing, but fading, that too? So there's flourishing, but also fading. Some people have described their practice lately as feeling sometimes beat up by the practice. Um, (laughs) And you must remember (laughs) what that feels like. It's like we feel beat up by aversion. We feel beat up by being a fool. We feel beat up by attachment or by obsessive thinking or whatever. And sometimes when I have that feeling myself, I'll think about going into sit, like going into a boxing ring. You know, and I'll pretend to have, you know, the helper put in the mouth guard and, you know, slap your face and put on the lights and just shove yourself back into the hall, you know. (laughs) And it's like ding, ding, ding. (laughs) It's like... Fight number 2,222. It it can really be like that sometimes. Uh, (laughs) Did you wear your helmet? (laughs) And that place where the mind can feel so formidable, um, it reminds me of mice. And if you've ever lived in a house where mice get in the house, especially this time of year, you know, they, they just have no pride. <laughs> They'll eat through plastic. You know, they can eat through anything. Uh, and even, I used to weave, and I'd have these nice weavings out on tables, and the mice would even eat these weavings. You know, it's just, I would come down in the morning and look and think, you know, how could they do that? Uh, and that's how the mind can be. The mice have no pride. The mind can have no pride. Uh, And it usually uh, can even seem like a cartoon. There was one uh, time in my life where I lived in northern Maine, and when I first moved up there, I lived in a tent for the summer. And this mouse used to come in, and I had a little clothesline in the tent, and the mouse would dance on the clothesline, kind of saying, ha ha. Just wait till you go to sleep <laughs> and see what I can do. Um, greed, hatred, and delusion are very similar. And, and just when the mindfulness and equanimity, just when we feel like we're flourishing, 
and things are going well, when they start to disappear, we're the most vulnerable. And you'll notice that when you're the most vulnerable, the mind will produce something that you bite on that's so painful that you can't help but bite. That's being in the boxing ring. You know, that's when we're a fool. Uh, and we can feel so afraid of that thought pattern, or we can feel so beat up by it. And over the years, I've seen that what trips me changes, and it can get very subtle. Um, my last retreat here, this thought kept appearing um, that I didn't want to, I was afraid to go to Burma. And that, uh, I've wanted to go to Burma for some years, but I have an immune system that is also formidable. And there's been this fear that if I go to Burma, I'll come back with malaria, meningitis, tuberculosis, mm, leprosy, <laughs> you know, and a few other things. Are, uh, so last year I almost went, and when I was sitting, I could feel everything would get really peaceful. And then the equanimity would start to go, and that thought would come, are you going to go to Burma? <laughs> and then I would just spin out on it, and spin out on it, and spin out of it, and to the point where I couldn't bear that thought to appear. Do you know that place? <laughs> huh. And it doesn't matter what the thought is. You know, fear can latch on to anything. And this is where the mind has no pride. You know, from retreat to retreat, what trips us up changes. And it can be the slightest little thing. But it's that biting, it's that identification that's so painful. It's getting lost that's so painful. This is another um, small quotation from that book, really important stuff my kids have taught me. One of her children said, when you're told not to put raisins up your nose, it's hard not to think about anything else. Greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> you can just picture a kindergarten kid <laughs> sitting there <laughs> and trying to stare at the raisins and not put them up <laughs> their nose. <laughs> oh. And when we're really down and out and that thought comes in, you know, I'm the worst yogi here. Do you step that raisin up your nose? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, or, <laughs> I hope the teachers like me the most, you know, that, and do you stuff that raisin up your nose? It's like, do we bite? That's when you get that sense of how the mind is mischievous. It has no pride at times. And if we get we go from being identified, <laughs> from putting the raisin up our nose, uh, to getting really lost 
we go into that downward spiral of doubt to fear and often to this overwhelming grief and despair and then it feels meaningless. And this is when we learn patience the most. You know, it's often when we think we can't go on. Uh, and that's where this determination plus the patience comes in. Uh, because I think that we learn patience mostly at the times of difficulty. We do learn patience when we have that absence of greed, hatred, delusion, and we really feel that timelessness. You know, that's really important. But we also learn incredible gentleness and patience through the times when we're the most lost and the more, most identified. Over and over I see that, that, that it's that ability to keep going no matter what, you know, with whatever's happening, that develops the patience so deeply. And we start again and again and again. And we need patience with this process of the body and mind opening. We'll have, in our practice, we'll notice surface tension in the body, but we'll also notice a deeper wiring or deeper karmic knots. And then we'll notice surface chatter and surface squawking in the mind to deeper obsessive patterns of thinking or deeper psychological patterns of thinking. And noticing the thoughts, even though they're really small, that can really trigger us. And whether they're surface tension in the body or karmic knots or these deeper psychological thoughts and patterns, when we see that they're not mine, patience is possible and there's more acceptance and more determination possible. If we can see that these knots and surface um, chatter and deeper obsessive thinking are all ways that we've tried to protect ourselves. They're all just our separate self way of defending itself when it hasn't seen clearly. And when we really see that some of the deeper knots, especially in the body, are places in the body that are actually really strong and that have sacrificed itself. It's like parts of our body sacrifices itself. It holds that greed, hatred, and delusion until we can open to it and experience it. So the more we understand that, the more we'll have a deep love and compassion and care for the deeper karmic knots in the body and for the deeper karmic knots in the mind. And we'll start to understand that there's no need whatsoever to do anything with them. They untangle themselves. If we meddle with them, whenever we meddle with something in the body or we meddle with something in the mind, it's just adding more aversion or attachment. And if we notice we're meddling with it, back off. That's what a neutral anchor is for. It's so important. There was one retreat I did here for three months with Upandita, uh, and it felt like right around the neck, down around 
my back to the sacrum and up around the other side. This whole circle, I called it the ring of fire. You know the ring of fire in the Pacific Ocean? It goes all around the Atlantic, down around California, around Australia, and up around Japan, up to Alaska again. It's like this volcanic area. That's how um, my back and neck appeared for three months. And there were times when I was sitting that I would sit five, six hours without moving because it hurt more to get up than to sit there. And it was just excruciating. You know, sitting, walking, sleeping, nothing changed this just incredible pain. And I felt like I walked around here like stiff and it just looked like any movement I made hurt more, which was true. <laughs> it was so painful. And I learned so much in that retreat around this balance of patience and determination. Um, there were times when I'd get so lost in the body, I'd think that the more I stayed with it, that it would be working it out. And I would see that that line between mindfulness and aversion was so thin that I'd spend a long time with my attention in these areas, but actually I was just reinforcing aversion. And I wouldn't even know it. Uh, uh, so it took me time to realize that one of the things I learned in, in that with, with this kind of pain, I would just do an attention with rising and falling with the breath. And then I would just glance through the body. Rising, falling, glance. Rising, falling, glance. Rising, falling, glance. Instead of getting caught in staying long time in, in these areas, I started just noticing it from the whole perspective of the body. Over, over, over. So there wasn't that danger of getting so lost and spending long times in that area. That's when I learned uh, that with chronic pain uh, that it's rare that we have non-judgmental attention. Very rare with, with chronic pain. And that by moving through it over and over or just staying with something neutral, it actually untangled itself. This experience and some others with pain taught me that the difficulty that we have teaches us more about anatta and dukkha than the easy times. It's like learning how to let that um, ring of fire come and go by itself and slowly shift, which it shifted over years, not days. Uh, I saw that a separate eye couldn't possibly undo that, that it really did undo itself with non-judgmental attention. It's that purity of attention that's so healing. Uh, so getting out of the way of that process is the patience and the determination. Finding ways to keep going, but to stay out of the way with karmic knots in the body or karmic knots in the mind is what's healing. This process is very unique 
for each of us. And in my early days of practice, it was really necessary for me to powerhouse through a lot of my practice. It's like that there was a determination that I was really willing to die meditating, literally. You know, it was just, I was suffering so much that I really um, wanted to be free so, so badly that I would have done anything. You know, and that kind of fierceness and warriorness in my practice was really helpful in those days. Uh, but then over time, you know, there was a way in which there was a more subtle balance that needed to take place where I still believe it's um, great to die meditating. You know, I don't, I think that that's a true thing. Um, but I had to learn a balance of this keeping going, but gentleness. And what I started to see, which was so amazing, is that the gentler I was, the more stuff came up. You know, that, that, that patience and allowing actually made the fire hotter uh, and the process started to, to go faster. So gentleness works. Patience works. Uh, finding that balance of not, you know, necessarily powerhousing through stuff, but firmness, keeping going. This is very individual for us, and it will change from retreat to retreat. It's also important to find this patience and determination in very small ways, not just with um, difficult times or times when it's easy. Uh, I found that um, over the course of retreats for myself, I would pick small things to try to be a little extra mindful of in the day. Uh, so one retreat where I was doing most of my walking meditation outside, I decided uh, to really pay attention to tying my shoes, you know, my sneakers, the laces. And it was so amazing to me that I would just get to my sneakers and I'd have that determination to be mindful of tying the laces and I'd miss it. You know, it's just like, I'm going to watch this loop being made. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to do it. And it would be done before I knew it. And then eating. You know, I'd say, I'm going to notice swallowing. And I'd, you know, lift the fork, put the fork in the potato, lifting, lifting, lifting. Whoops! <laughs> Missed that one. <laughs> Let's try the next one. Uh, and these practices are really important also for developing patience. Because we see how even when we're the most determined, it doesn't have to be a breath, it doesn't have to be a step. It can be anything. It can be brushing our hair. It can be flushing a toilet. It can be anywhere. But when we make that determination to just pick one place where we try to make a little more extra effort, it actually shows us how difficult it is to really do that with consistency. 
And this is where we learn what the word practice means. <laughs> practice implies doing it over and over and over. When I lived in northern Maine for eight years, um, I didn't have running water. And there was this wonderful well, pretty far from the house, uh, that in 40 below weather, deep snow drifts, or black fly season, or mosquito season, or, you know, an easy <laughs> autumn clear day, it was every day a practice of getting water. It was survival. These are things that I think, again, anything we do over and over really teach us a lot about greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, because it was the same act, year after year, day after day. And sometimes my skin would freeze to the bucket and it would hurt so much to pull it off when it was so cold and um, getting the water. But some days, even if it was freezing, I loved it. And then other days, I wished for running water so much. And other days, it was neutral. And it had nothing to do with getting the water out of the well. This is another good practice, to pick something that's fairly neutral, but that we do over and over again, and to watch how our moods change, and that they have nothing to do with what we're doing. It's fascinating, and it teaches us patience. Someone asked today about the practice integrating in our daily life. And the place where I've seen the practice take the longest to integrate is um, when I'm driving in practice. Uh, so some things, I think, have integrated a little more easily. But the, when I go out in traffic driving, what I try to notice is impatience rather than patience. And it's amazing. I mean, I turn into a monster. You know, <laughs> I really can't even believe it myself. You know, what kind of personality changes that I go through when I get in a car. Uh, and it's like, if somebody's driving slower than the speed limit, on a country road, I keep thinking the police should give them the ticket. <laughs> and again, if you look at your daily life, it's important to take things where you don't see the practice integrating and have patience with it. So for so many years, I kept thinking that this should change, you know, that I should be a nice person when I'm in traffic. Uh, and that I should be able to be patient. And it took me so long to accept that this pattern was deep, that this is where I got to see my impatience. Until I got to the point where I could say, this is what happens when I'm caught in traffic. <laughs> Think about it. Look at the difference between having this incredible expectation that that should somehow miraculously change because I've sat on my zafu so much, to the place where I could go, this is what happens when I'm in traffic. Impatience appears. That's patience.
And it's taught me so much about how to work with aversion. For so many years, you know, I would get into this whole place of just tighter and tighter and feeling like I'm in a hurry until I finally would look at myself and say, <laughs> you know, you're in a lot of pain. How about some compassion? And then I'd feel that deep caring about the pain. And then I would look around at all the people stuck in traffic around me and I could see that they were in pain too. And I could do compassion for them. And then I could be mindful. So it taught me a lot about working with aversion and impatience. Often that ability to care about the pain and then accept the impatience and then learn how to notice impatience. Noticing it come and go by itself and finally not to take it personally. One of the other places that I've noticed the practice takes some time to integrate is um, when I visit my family, my blood family. <laughs> took a little longer <laughs> to integrate than I would have liked. And yesterday I went to visit my family. A, a lot of them were uh, in Framingham. Uh, it's taken them a long time to really even remotely accept um, what I do. It's like no one asks about it at all. It's like it's a subject that doesn't come up. Uh, <laughs> and they only live an hour from here. It, it's like they live in Mars. Um, but I've noticed the last few times that I visited that my father cuts out articles out of the newspaper on Buddhism. And he hands them to me. That's it. You know, it's like he hands them to me. And yesterday, you know, I never thought I'd see this. My father was a fighter pilot, a flying ace, you know, very serious being um, and scary when I was a child. And there was a um, huge spider that suddenly he noticed on his arm as he was getting water in the sink. Really big. I mean, very frightening looking spider. And my father looked down, walked outside and placed it really lovingly down on the ground. And we came in and my stepmother said, I have bites all over me. You know, my fa <laughs> your father won't kill anything. He won't kill spiders. He <laughs> won't kill anything. She was upset, you know, and I couldn't believe it. You know, it's just like, my father put a spider outside? <laughs> and my stepmother is upset <laughs> that he's not killing things? You know, what planet am I on? It, it's just, to see that kind of change is so wonderful. And how does it happen? You know, sometimes I think that over the years, if I had said a lot about this practice and I, if I had talked about not killing, nothing would have happened. But I think it was just that of the silence and mostly I think people change out of the changes they see in us. And that's, my stepmother has said that to me many times. It's not like she ever asked me about what, what, what I'm doing, 
but I notice that she sees changes in me that she respects, and then that changes her. Patience with dying. That's one of the last things I wanted to mention in terms of patience. There's a um, quotation by Suzuki Roshi, the man who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. When he was just about to die, he said, I don't want to die. And I thought that had so much patience in it and so much understanding. It's like to be able to really accept, to have the patience in those few moments right before he died to allow that he didn't want to, allowed him to be able to die peacefully, to be able to say it, this great Zen master, I don't want to die, and then to just let it happen. That's a beautiful teaching for us about patience and honesty and determination. So in the days of practice, try to remember this balance of keeping going, that determination, that resolution, but also to balance that determination with this patience, this gentleness, this acceptance. All the blessings in practice come from this balance. So to end with this um, quotation from Anne Morrow Lindbergh from the book Gift from the Sea. The sea does not reward those who are too anxious, too greedy, or too impatient. To dig for treasures shows not only impatience and greed, but lack of faith. Patience, patience, patience is what the sea teaches. Patience and faith. One should lie empty, open, choiceless as a beach, waiting for a gift from the sea. Can we do this? Can we lie empty, open, choiceless as a beach, waiting for a gift from the sea? Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.